Well, it has been an incredible few weeks of news, as you can imagine. One month ago when we celebrated Father's Day was also the 80-year anniversary since the beginning of the Second World War when Germany invaded Poland, and that was the 1st of September 1939. And we know that three days later on the 3rd of September, Australia also entered the war. But after the war's conclusion, as the horrific gas chambers and the concentration and extermination camps were opened, the world obviously turned its attention to this big question of human rights. What are the things that constitute basic human rights? What are some of the basic fundamental principles that all people, regardless of, of their colour or their creed or where, whatever it is, their gender, their occupation, whatever it is, what are the most fundamental human rights that all people are entitled to? And Eleanor Roosevelt, who was the, the, the wife or the widow of, of Franklin Roosevelt, the American pre president who died uh, shortly before the war's conclusion, was actually the one who really championed and pushed the UN to draft its Charter of Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And this article at the time included 30 articles of what the most basic fundamental human rights are. Now, as you can imagine, over the years, there has been a lot of debate and discussion over the fundamental principles that all people are entitled to. Obviously, you know, freedom from persecution, freedom uh, to be able to choose their religion, uh, all sorts of things, freedom of speech. But what's funny about this list is that even as you examine this list, there are a lot of things on there which are fantastic, absolutely brilliant moral principles. But there also are some really controversial ones that no person, even though a number of nations have ratified this agreement, there would still be some on this list that people do find unsettling. But the reason why I mentioned human rights, and you're probably wondering what relevance does this have to the story that we've read today? It has pivotal relevance because at the time of Jesus, nobody spoke about this question of human rights. Something that you and I take for granted today, something that is just ingrained as something that we just accept as a default principle, people did not accept that necessarily in those days. And it wouldn't surprise you that some of the some of the policies even of a, of a nation like Germany during the, during the Second World War were actually in line with a lot of nations. They were doing a lot of the same things that a lot of other nations were doing, just in different ways. Now, if human rights are not really a concept that people that was mentioned a lot or spoken about a lot in the Bible, you might be wondering, what does it have to do with Acts chapter 10? And what especially does it have to do with our topic today, which is about getting on board with God's plan? And it is this, as you read the story in Acts chapter 10, as you put your place, as you put yourself in the position of either Peter or Cornelius, you might be wondering, what is God's purpose? What is God's plan in this situation? Is it simply for God to orchestrate a bizarre set of circumstances which leads Peter, one of his chief disciples, to share the gospel with a man by the name of Cornelius? Or is there something else deeper driving this plot? And I want to suggest that it is this very theme of human rights which is actually driving the plot of the narrative. Listen to Peter's words once he has his encounter with Cornelius. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Are you really saying to me that Peter 
who spent years with Jesus, who was virtually part of Jesus' ministry from the very beginning, who witnessed the incredible miracles that Jesus did, who heard all of Jesus' teachings, who heard Jesus say things like, my house will be called a house of prayer for people of all nations, who saw all of the ways that Jesus lived his life. And it's only now that he figures out that God does not show favoritism, something that you and I have probably got from the very beginning of our walk with God, that God accepts all people. Peter, why is it only taking you now to figure out that God does not show favoritism? And the reality is this. It's because in Peter's day, people believed that God showed favoritism. It doesn't matter how great the UN Declaration of Human Rights is. It is missing one important key element. And that is a reason for giving anybody human rights. And that reason is God. God is the one who has created all people. God is the one who has created all people equal. He has not made men better than women. He has not made women better than men. He's not made black people better than white people. God is the one who shows no favoritism. And this is the driving plot. This is the message that Peter is being sent to communicate. God accepts all people. God loves everybody and God has died for everybody equally. But he accepts those from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Now, as we talk today about getting on board with God's plan for our lives, I just want to point out a couple of things for you from the narrative, in case you're wondering. The story, as you can imagine, it starts off with a man called Cornelius. Cornelius isn't just any man. Cornelius occupies a very important position. He is a centurion. You've probably heard the word centurion before. It's very similar to our word century. It simply means that he was in charge of a hundred men. So he held a very important command in the army. He had a hundred men under him. And these men would serve in the army, in the Roman army, for, for 20, some 25 years. And at the conclusion of their service, they would be given a great piece of land and they would be given a lot of money and they would be given a lot of prestige. If you made it through the 20 years or 25 years of service, that is, right? It was a, a great retirement package almost, if you could get to retirement, you know. But Cornelius is in charge of 100 men. And one day he hears the voice of God telling him, I want you to send some of your resources, some of your men down to Joppa. Joppa is about 35, 40 kilometers from where he is. He is in a place called Caesarea. I've got some photos um, on screen. Caesarea is a beautiful place. It's a beautiful spot by the water. A fantastic architectural success. The Romans had figured out a way to, to construct and put together cement underwater. And this beautiful spot is built on, on, on water. And these buildings would have been there when Peter went there. So Peter is in Joppa. The following day, Peter has this incredible vision, which he can't make sense of. He sees a sheet in his vision being lowered down. Was it a bed sheet? I don't know. He sees some sort of sheet being lowered down. And he sees all of these animals coming down, these birds, these reptiles coming down in this vision. And he's told to get up to kill and to eat. And Peter thinks to himself, God, I'm on Weight Watchers. You know, I can't eat this food. It's against, it's against my religious practice. And God three times says to him, Peter, do as I say. Peter, get up and go to Macca's and eat. Right? Three times he hears this. And in case you're wondering, three times is significant to Peter because Jesus did something else three times to Peter. He asked him if, he, if, if, if Peter loved him and restored him. 
So this is a significant moment for Peter. But Peter's got no idea. He's sitting, God, what is the point of this vision? What is the point of it? And you've got to imagine that this would have been something incredible for Peter. Peter has never seen Hulu. He's never watched anything on YouTube. So this vision must have been something incredible to him. And it is only as the story unravels that Peter and Cornelius, who have never met, who have no idea who who the other person is, who have no idea why God is speaking to them in this moment, in this time of history, suddenly the pieces fall together. When Peter goes with these men, he makes the two-day journey. He goes with them. He goes into the house of Cornelius. He realizes that he's breaking all cultural taboos to do this. He tells them that I shouldn't be doing this, but he goes there. And then suddenly, as Cornelius divulges his story, he realizes, God, that's why you gave me the vision. That's the plan you have for my life. It is an incredible moment, but it, it is pivotal within the history of the church that this moment had. And I want to say three things about this story, three critical things that will help us in our journey and in our understanding of how of the things that we have to do to get on board God's plan. The first thing is this, if you want to be on board God's plan, you have to accept this basic principle. You will not always know the end from the beginning. Neither Peter nor Cornelius knew what God had in store for them. Peter may have feared Cornelius. Remember, Cornelius is a centurion. He can order Peter's life to be taken at any moment. At this point, the church was beginning to be persecuted very heavily. For all Peter knew, the reason why Cornelius was was summoning him there was to have him killed, to try to suppress the movement in that part of the world. Neither Peter nor Cornelius knew the purpose of what God was asking them to do. The plan that God had for their life, the plan that God had for this encounter, only became clear after a few days, after they had taken the risk, after Cornelius had sent his soldiers, after Peter had actually gone to Cornelius' house. And that is true for us today. God's plan for our life, we don't always know what it's going to look like. And it sounds very strange. Imagine that you're working on a project at work, an IT project or something like that, something that's going to revolutionize your business. But your boss or your manager comes to you and says, this is the project, but doesn't tell you what he, wants from the, what he or she wants as the, as the outcome of that project. Right? You're going to be working blind for the entirety of that program. And that's what Peter and Cornelius are doing. They don't know why. All they know is that God has asked them to do something. And Cornelius gives up resources He sends his troops. His troops would have had duties to do. They would have been watching, protecting the city. He sends them out. God is at times going to ask you to send out resources from your own life. He's going to ask you to send out resources like your time, resources like your money, resources like your family, your house. And you're not always going to know why you're giving those resources to God's cause. You won't always know the end from the beginning. Peter could have said to these men, God, I don't want to go with these men. I have my kids to pick up from daycare. God, I've got a job tomorrow. I don't have any annual leave left. But Peter realized that God was doing something bigger here and he needed to go along with the flow even though he didn't fully understand where the journey was going. That is so true of our lives today. It's actually very interesting that the way that mortgages have actually changed our, our way of thinking 
So typically the life of a mortgage is 30 years. But what that 30 years does is it actually, more often than not, it, fix you, it fixes you to a certain time and location. You can't go overseas on long, extravagant holidays. You have to come back to pay the bills. You've got to go back to work once your four weeks of annual leave finishes. But that is very different to the way people thought in the biblical world. People weren't as fixated on their time and location. So when Jesus' when Jesus's parents, Mary and Joseph, went to Bethlehem, provided Joseph could find work as a carpenter, which he would have very easily... They would have stayed in Bethlehem for one to two years, then they went to Egypt, and then they went back to Galilee. They didn't have anything necessarily calling them back home. And there were other reasons for that. But what the mortgages have done in our society is they've fixed us to a time and location. So what we tend to do as a result of that is we tend to plan out our lives a lot more. We need to plan out our year a lot more. We need to plan where we're sending our kids to school, where we're going to holiday, what days of the week we're going to work. How we're going to pay this bill? We need to plan and budget and do all of these things a lot more, which didn't happen as much in the biblical world. But what that has done to us as a result is often it has made us less attuned to what God has planned for our lives. It's made us less flexible to the plans that God might have for our lives. You and I can't be on board with God's plan for our lives if we have already planned our future for ourselves. Hello? I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> if we want to serve God, if we want to see what God has planned for our lives, we cannot plan everything for ourselves. We have to give God space to interject and say, this is the plan I have for you. Peter could have said to God, God, I've got other things planned for the rest of my day and the rest of my week. I can't go and make this trip to Caesarea. It would have been like going from Sydney to Newcastle. If God said to you, pack up this afternoon and go and take a couple of days off work, most of us wouldn't be able to do it. We can't always rigidly plan our lives to get on board with God's plan. And, there's, and, it, and it is really true here in this sense that at the same time, planning will be harder for us because we won't always know what God is doing. Peter, at the start of that day, didn't understand what God's purpose was in this encounter. It was only by the end of the day when he said, I now realize, I now realize, God, why you sent me here. James, the brother of Jesus, put it like this. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this city or that city, spend a year here or there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live here and do this or that. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. The Lord establishes their steps. Lee Strobel, I'm sure many of you would have heard of him, the famous apologist, big writer who wrote the Case for Christ series. He worked for the Chicago Tribune as a reporter as a journalist. And one day he felt that God was saying to him, I want you to share the gospel with one of your colleagues. And he sees his colleague walk into, a, into the print room. And Lee doesn't fully understand what God's plan is. God hasn't given him enough notice. He hasn't given him enough time to get you know, your six ways or your three ways, to two ways to live, everything together. He hasn't God given him the time to plan it all out. But he just feels that God is telling him, go and share the gospel with this man. So he follows him into the print room 
and then shares the gospel, gives him a great presentation of the gospel and says, Jesus loves you, Jesus died for you, he cares for you, he's on your side, he wants to transform your life, come to church, it's Easter this week, expecting that this was just going to be this great Cornelius and Peter moment out of nowhere. And the man just looked at him and said, thanks, and walked off. A few years later, this time when Lee was pastoring a church, a man came to him after the service and just said, I want you to know that you transformed my life. God spoke to you that day in that print room and brought me to church. And, Peter, and, and, and Lee thought to himself, I've never met you before, I don't know who you are. And he said, you actually didn't realize that you followed that gentleman in, your colleague, and were sharing the gospel with him. I was actually brought to that office that day to fix the printer. You didn't actually see me. I was standing behind the printer fixing it. You and your colleague came and spoke. But I heard what you had to say. I heard you share the gospel. I went home to my wife that night and I said, we have got to go to church this week. I went to church that weekend and gave my life to the Lord, he said. Lee didn't understand that that's what God was doing. But the truth is that in our lives, we won't know always what God is doing. More often than not, with most things in our life, we won't actually see the fruit of our labor until we are on the other side of eternity. The second thing I want to say is this. If we want to be in step with God's plan for our lives, we need to be prepared to get out of our comfort zone. Peter made it very clear that he was doing something which was culturally taboo. He was doing something which was shunned upon by his Jewish counterparts. He was doing something that was immoral to him. They believed, the Jewish people believed in, that, in those days that you didn't enter into a house of a Gentile. You didn't have fellowship with them. You didn't have a meal with them. Something that you and I would do freely, most of us. This was something that Peter wasn't supposed to do. He had to step out of his comfort zone. And I want to point out something here that Luke, the author of Acts, makes a very clever quip here against Peter. This is, I think, the only time in the Bible that, I, I could be wrong, but I think this is one of the only times in the Bible that Peter's ancestors are mentioned. It says, it calls him Peter, son of Jonah. Right? That should remind you of another Jonah in the Bible. A Jonah who didn't want to go and have fellowship and share the good news or bad news with people of a different nationality to him, the Assyrians. Right? So Luke makes a quip here and says, Peter, son of Jonah, he's sort of the same. He doesn't want to go in and have fellowship with somebody who's not a Jew. So Peter had to step out of his comfort zone in those days. And we are called today. We are called today to step out of our comfort zone to serve God. We're called to give up things that make us comfortable, our time, our resources, our family, at times to serve God and to be in step with God's plan. It would be so much easier on so many issues if God didn't ask us to serve him, wouldn't it? It would be easy for us at times to follow what society says on certain moral issues and not have the argument at all. But God calls us to be uncomfortable. He calls us to have the debate. He calls us to have the argument to serve him and to actually allow people to fully live out the plan that God has for their lives, truly. But you and I have to be prepared to get out of our comfort zone. And Jesus is not asking any of us to do something that he himself has not already done and not already done it magnified. Jesus, when he came to earth, he stepped out of his comfort zone. He stepped out of his comfort zone to come from perfection, from heaven, from eternity. He stepped out of his comfort zone, perfect unity with the Father and with the Spirit in order to enter the world, in order to serve the world, in order to accomplish the plan that God had for his life. Jesus, what if he had have said to the Father, 
It's illegal. It's against the law for me to enter into relationship, into fellowship with these human beings. But what does the Bible say? Not only did Jesus step out of his comfort zone, he stepped into the very thing that he was opposed against, and that was sin. As Paul made clear, he said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. What is Paul saying? That Jesus did the very thing that made him most uncomfortable and that was take on the sin of the entire world. That is truly stepping out of your comfort zone. And he calls us to do the same thing. Jesus himself said, I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. That is the purpose of this story for Peter. God wants Peter to understand that he has to step out of his comfort zone so that a powerful lesson will be displayed for the church. A lesson that we to this day are still getting moral principles and value out of and still being discipled with God through Peter's experience. Peter had to become uncomfortable. The one thing I love about us Australians, I really, really love this about Australians, is we are comfortable with virtually anybody, really. Right? We are so comfortable that we don't even bother to learn each other's names. That's why we call each other mate. <laughs> You're my mate, I'm your mate, she's my mate, we're all mates here. The first time I asked a girl out, I called her mate. She said no. God said to me, Jason, don't worry, Satan steals the seeds from some people. We're all mates here. I often wonder what it would be like if, if the Bible was happened, if the events of the Bible happened in Australia. For God so loved his mates that he gave his only mate so that we would all be mates together. Often what would happen if the wedding in Cana happened down in, the, down in, in Australia, down in Mudgee or something. Mary comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, we've run out of alcohol. We need to go to the bottle And Jesus says, don't worry, Mayor, I got this round. You get the next. <laughs> We're so comfortable with each other. We really are. But sometimes we need to get uncomfortable in order to follow the plans that God has for our lives. Jason the Great. <laughs> the final thing we need to do is we need to be prepared to hear the voice of God. It shouldn't surprise us that Cornelius and Peter when God speaks to them in these very different encounters, one through hearing the voice of God, the other one through this incredible vision, it shouldn't surprise us that they are both doing fundamental aspects of walking with the Lord, even though they fully didn't understand it. Listen to what it says about Cornelius. It says, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. That was just the military ranking that he was part of. He and all his family were what they were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed regularly. He is devout and God-fearing. He prays regularly. He gives generously. It shouldn't surprise us that God is speaking to a man like this who is honouring him. And what about Peter? It says, at noon the following day, as they were on their journey, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He doesn't go up to the roof to play golf. He doesn't go up to the roof to watch the grand final. He goes up to the roof to pray. It shouldn't surprise us that those who God calls 
to be in step with him, those who God caused to fulfill vital aspects of his, of his plan to reach the world, are those who are walking faithfully with God. What did Jesus say? He said, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. If you and I are dishonest in our personal walk with God, he isn't going to entrust us to do incredible things for him, is he? He isn't going to send a servant who's unwilling to go. Both Peter and Cornelius hear the voice of God at a time where they are honouring him faithfully with the little. And he turns that little into much. That is true for our lives. If you and I want to walk in step with God's plan for our lives, we must be faithful with the little that God has given us. And all people, it doesn't matter whether you're your family, it doesn't matter whether they're your colleagues at work, it doesn't matter whether they are your brothers and sisters at church, you actually honour them through having a stronger walk with the Lord. You honour them with, your, with the time you spend with the Lord. As great of a privilege as it is to actually serve you guys preaching like this, the more important time is not up here on stage. It's behind the scenes when we have to prepare the message, isn't it? Right? If we don't honour each other by walking faithfully, collectively, we can't plan and follow God's plan for our lives. But I want to say this. It is essential that we understand that God has spoken most powerfully through the cross. He has said his world, he has explained clearly to us what his plan is at the cross. He isn't going to give any of us a greater revelation than he gave us at the cross and with what happened in that empty tomb. There are so many people saying things like, God, I will do this for you, I will do this, that for you, if you will only speak to me. But know that he has spoken to humanity most powerfully through the cross. If we haven't heard his voice at the cross and with his resurrection, we will never hear his voice. What did, what did the author of Hebrews say? In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom made, he made the universe. What is he saying? He's saying at the cross, that is where God has spoken most powerfully. He has, he has put forward his plan. He has written his plan in blood. This is the plan he wants for our lives. Jeremiah the prophet said, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Can you imagine if he said at that time, oh, and by the way, my plan for you is to actually enter the world and to die for your sins and to be raised from the dead. That is what the gospel communicates to us. That is the power of the gospel. Can I just close with this story? A few weeks ago, we went to camp. Um, on the young adults, we went, we went on camp. And I shared with them a very powerful story, and I shared with them a powerful story as a case study, and I divided them up into two teams and said, I want to hear your responses. I'm going to give you a case study, and I want to hear how you would act in this situation. And it led to an argument, a big argument, which I'm actually glad about, and I don't sympathize with them. Because it is critical these days that we teach our young people, of whom I am not one anymore, but it is, it is most powerful... That, that, we, that we teach our young people, mate, our mates who are younger than us, the power of critical thinking. The power of critical thinking because they can't download it on an app. So I gave them this case study. And the case study 
was a case that happened during the Second World War. And it involved a young Jewish man by the name of Tuvia, Tuvia Bielski. If you've ever seen the movie Defiance, it is a cracking movie, worth watching. But Tuvia was a young Jewish man who grew up in Belarus during the Second World War. And then when the Germans came in, they swept through the Soviet Union so powerfully, right up almost to the gates of Moscow, so quickly that nobody really had time to prepare. And as they were going in, they started deporting Jews off and shooting them into mass graves. And people are hearing all of these rumours about mass graves and mass extinction and concentration camps and things like this. He has to go back to his family to try to find them. But when he gets there, he finds that they've actually been sold off and they're one of the people that have, have been shot into mass graves. He manages to locate his two brothers, Zeus and Azel. And he decides that we can't stay here in Belarus because if we stay here, the, the Nazis are going to get us. We're Jewish, we're wanted Jews. They have our list, they keep very meticulous records. If we stay here, they're going to come after us. Where do we go? And I was describing this scenario to the young adults and I was saying, what would you do in this situation if this was happening to you? And what Tuvia does is he says to his brothers, our best chance is if we flee into the forest. If we flee into the forest between Belarus and Russia, that's our best bet. So they flee into the forest and they stay in the forest for several years until the conclusion of the war. And they partake in some of the war efforts and things like that. But you imagine being camped out in the forest freezing cold climate, temperatures there drop to minus 30 degrees during, during um, winter, I don't know said it's harshest. He has his brothers there and slowly, as more and more Jews actually trickle into the woods and into the forest, they realise we have to help these people. We're experienced in these woods, but they're not. So with minimal resources, with no financial elements at their disposal, they manage to rescue 1,200 Jews in that forest between the start of the war when they went into the forest and by the end of the war. And they lost people along the way. They lost people along the way uh, through, through, through um, starvation, through disease. But they would go back into the ghettos and, re and receive as many as Jews as who would come. And they would say, it's better here with us, even if your chances of survival are minimal. But the thing about Tavia is this, is he didn't have the knowledge he didn't have the expertise in everything. He didn't have a plan. If you had said to him, within a few months, you're going to have 1,200 people in a camp with you in the forest and you're going to have to build homes, you're going to have to find a way to feed all of these people, he didn't have the plan. And our lives as Christians are like that. We're in a forest. The enemy is all around us. We don't have a plan. We don't have everything planned out. Our job is to rescue as many of them. And Tuvia's motto was this, one Jew survives, it is an offence to the entire Nazi regime. When we look eternally, one person comes to Christ, it is an offence to Satan and his army. We may not plan everything, we don't have all the details, but God has the plan. God has all the details. And there was this beautiful moment, this beautiful moment when Tuvia was leading his people and they had to flee because their camp was discovered. And they come across this swamp. This swamp is miles long. And they have hundreds of people and they've got to try to cross them because they've got the Nazi soldiers at their back. And one person says, is God going to part the waters sarcastically like he did with our ancestors? And these Jewish people decided what they were going to do was they tied themselves to each other 
as a way of trying to keep each other up, save them from drowning, put all their kids on their shoulders and march through this muddy swamp, this water, for hours in order to cross into safety. And I just remember thinking, I remember thinking at that time, God may not part the waters like he did, but he made another great promise in the Bible. In Isaiah, he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the, the fire, you will not be burned. When the flames, uh, the flames will not set you ablaze. We're in the forest, friends. We're trying to save as many as we can with the gospel message. We don't have all the answers. We don't have the plan. But God has the plan. And he'll be with us. Father, I thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for the way that you have planned out our lives from the start to finish, Lord. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that each and every one of us will walk in step with your plan, Lord, as you say in that beautiful proverb, Lord. But I thank you, Lord Jesus, that while we may have difficult times, Lord, and we do have a lot of great times along the way as well, Lord, most importantly, we look forward to that day, Lord, where your plan will be complete, where your plan which you have written in the heavens through your son, Jesus, Lord, will be complete when we're all worshipping together. Lord, I thank you especially for the story of Peter and Cornelius, and I do thank you for their lives, Lord, and the way that our lives will be inspired through their story, Lord. But I pray that, that out of this, Lord, all of us will take something away, Lord, by your Spirit. We plead that we will all take something away from this, Lord, and that as a community, Lord, that we will continue in that faithful vision, Lord, and that you'll give us more guidance and wisdom, Lord, in how we can live that your plan out more successfully. In Jesus' name, amen.